My recommendation is that legislators, regulators, investors, developers all need to work together because maybe what they don't know is that bankability is key, but it's not set by local governments. Bankability is a benchmark set by banks and financiers. And I've worked across the states and I've worked in international markets. Bankability is a benchmark all in every single market. Mm -hmm. The banks need to make sure they didn't get paid at the end of the day. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangin, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. The podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. Our website's renewenergy.com. That's R-E-N-E-U energy.com. I'm excited on this episode of the podcast to have Nobel Chang. He's a managing partner in commercial strategy and business development at Palladium Energy. Palladium Energy is a national energy infrastructure development and project finance firm focused on providing value through efficient but thorough execution, extensive project development experience, broad market reach, and creative financing structure. Nobel leads business development, market strategy, and commercial execution. Starting his solar career in 2009, Nobel has originated in development distributed generation utility scale projects in CalISO, Northwest, MISO, ISO New England, PJAM, and Southeast markets in the United States. He also has developed projects internationally in Mexico, Chile, and Japan. Nobel was the VP of development at U.S. Topco Energy. He started a Greenfield Development Solar Company and then joined Pinegate Renewables as the VP of New Markets and Capital Strategy. Nobel will be attending the Solar and Wind Finance and Investment Summit on March 6th to 9th of 2022 in Scottsdale, Arizona. We'll have his contact information in the notes of the podcast if you want to meet him there or contact him outside of the meeting at the conference. There's a lot of interesting topics that he talks about, how to look at new solar market, bankability when it comes to all solar markets, whether that be domestic or international, how to handle the booms and bust cycles of uh, solar development or the solar coaster, how to scale solar development, which was all really interesting topics. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit. This is the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to have Nobel Chang. He's the managing partner of Palladium Energy. Welcome, Nobel, to the podcast. Thank you for being here. I really feel like our audience will learn a lot with your diversity of experience in solar and renewables and provide really great insights. So thank you for making the time today. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Anytime. In the intro, we talked about Palladium Energy, but it'd be great to hear about the company from your perspective and your role. Palladium Energy is a utility scale and solar plus storage investor and developer. Now we're committed to providing clean energy and sustainable energy across the country for a brighter future through the origination and development and financing of renewable energy projects. Palladium Energy with two partners, Danny Willich and Mark Marabito. We band together because of our complementary skill sets and a shared vision of deploying as much renewable energy into the grid as, as possible. Solar development is becoming more complex by the day. And we started a company because we saw the need for high quality development in a rapidly growing space. Also, too often we see a disconnect between kind of developers and institutional investors. And so we acquire solar and solar plus storage projects and take these to FTP. We take the projects from an approach like with the end in mind, financing mm. them. And so getting them built and getting renewable energy electrons like into the grid, you know, so 
we pride ourselves on efficient M&A and diligence processes and our attentive approach to projects and our team has collectively closed on um, over a billion dollars in debt, 420 wow. million in tax equity, $500 million in sponsor equity. I've also developed about 6.7 gigawatts. 1.7 gigawatts of that is injecting power into the grid. This is across multiple markets in the U.S., international markets, across different technologies, solar, wind, gas, biomass. We really like to partner with developers. And we structured our team to give each project that we partner on kind of this boots on the ground mentality. Mm-hmm. And finally, we closed two rounds of capital from a group of family offices based out of Dallas and Denver via joint venture. And so we're very excited about the opportunity to be a part of the renewable energy transition. I am managing partner here, but I lead business development and commercial strategy at Palladium Energy. I would say I'm the generalist of the group, right? So I would, <laughs> I would describe myself as like an eternal optimist. I'm in the front end of development life cycle, working on the new market strategies with our team so that we could focus our origination and development efforts. I work on identifying and originating and securing commercial uptakes for our projects. But the best part of my role is the business development part. I get to develop and build, foster, nurture relationships with developers, industry stakeholders, EPC and providers, and investors. Solar is about people. After all, isn't it all about protecting the earth and the people? That's why we're in this business. That's pretty amazing what Palladium's background is, both your experience domestically and internationally. We're a developer of solar projects, and you have to definitely be an eternal optimist, especially to as well working on corporate offtake and I think you made another great point about how it's all about relationships and obviously saving the planet. It's pretty interesting. Like you have a very varied role within the company. Yeah, thanks so much. I've been in the business since late 2009 and have done a lot of projects kind of all over the place across the U.S. from coast to coast and international markets. What I've learned there, I definitely would apply to what I do here at Palladium. We're going to talk a lot more about that later. Obviously, there's not a lot of people who've been in the industry since 2009 and as well has different experience in the U.S. and internationally. You were talking about how Palladium's bringing their development expertise, obviously investment background to help developers develop projects. How early in the development process do you get involved normally, or does it depend based on the yeah, project? That's a great question. So we're an investor and developer of utility-scale solar storage projects across the U.S., our smallest project now is about 35 megawatts. Our largest is a little over 100. You know, we get in as early as site control, but we're able to go all the way. We're going to acquire projects from site control all the way to kind of late stage. At Palladium will develop and fund projects in its entirety. That's great to know. And then do you exit out at notice to proceed or NTP? That's what you were mentioning before. Is that correct? That's right. What we're best at doing is developing projects. Yes. We're not the best long-term owner of solo projects. And so we do exit at NTP. That's really helpful. I think there's a huge market in financing of capital, as you mentioned, institutional capital that has the development expertise. And that's something that you're offering to the development community, which is pretty amazing to understand. Yeah, thank you. It'll be interesting. I know you mentioned that how many megawatts that you look for in projects. Can you talk about like what are some of the normal characteristics that you're looking for in solar projects that you want to partner with? Like what's the ideal solar project? We look at a lot of projects. You know, we're a small and nimble team. We tend to choose projects that have a high probability of moving through. And so in the projects that we have partnered on, 
We have taken a very deep look at constructability and bankability. We've developed projects with the end in mind, which is financing, getting the bill, right? And so we take a step back and look at all of the four pillars of development and make sure that the projects that we acquire can get there. Our developers and our team have done a wide range of projects from conventional natural gas to solar. So we're not afraid of complex development, if that's helpful. Yeah, definitely. It is helpful. And it sounds like on these utility scale projects, which I thought was interesting that you were mentioning the pre-interview, that you work a lot on the offtake and usually the offtakes through like a corporate offtaker. It's not you selling to the grid, but through a corporate PPA. And I know that those are a lot more complicated agreements like corporate PPA to negotiate than like a behind the meter project or if you're just selling merchant into the grid. And obviously that helps with financeability. I'm sure when you're trying to sell at NTP. Yeah, that's right. And so I think we'll discuss this in a little bit, but one of the market drivers for us is the offtake. We're very offtake centric. So we also look at utility RFPs, kind of read the tea leaves to understand what corporate offtake and what utility RFPs and what other forms of offtake can fit a project. Typically with the project that we acquire, we want to see multiple paths so that we can ensure that the project make it to COD. That makes a lot of sense, obviously, to look at the tea leaves with the utility RFPs and then projects. Do you ever look at it from the perspective of, hey, we have this relationship with the corporate. Let's find a developer that has like a potential project that could fit that need. Yes, absolutely. We have then. So our approach to analyzing a market or a specific strategy that I have in place, it kind of looks like a funnel. On a top line, we take a look at the offtake structures in place. And then from there, we're to formulate a strategy into filling that offtake bucket. Again, we develop projects with the end in mind. And a big portion of what we do is to understand what offtake structures are in place. And then we go out there to acquire projects and fill the bucket, if you will. That makes a lot of sense. And I know we were speaking about this before, that state-level incentives play a big thing in different markets. Can you talk about what states that you prefer to develop and invest with developers compared to other and how state incentives impacts whether you'll develop in a certain state? That's a great question. We're a small and nimble team and we set the team up for kind of the boots on the ground to develop, right? So these projects that we acquire and partner on, we give its full attention. So you should meet the developers on our team. They truly do not miss a single detail. <laughs> so every project that we require, we have literally stepped our boots on the ground. Our projects and our partners' projects are not just entries in the spreadsheet. They're living and breathing things. And so being a small team, wanting to step on our projects, we have to make smart decisions. And being nimble means you have to make them efficiently. You know, I catch opportunity as it arises. Just like you said, there are states that we want to invest in and states that we don't want to invest in, but there are 50 states. Each of them has its kind of pros and cons. But quite literally, each state has the potential of being a solid solar market depending on strategy. So we break down how we view states and new markets into like basically three categories. It helps us build a mental model and make smart decisions. So you can imagine our process like a three-step funnel. First of all, the setup begins with a framework. How do we sell electricity? Is it a deregulated market where we can sell energy to anybody? Or is it a regulated market where we can only sell energy to high utilities? You know, what does the development landscape look like, the zoning process, the land use restrictions, the critical permitting? And a whole lot of developers that are on the ground. Is it kind of large players or small players? Where does it mix of both? How do we connect to it? What's the interconnection process look like? And how long does it take to connect? The second part of the journey into understanding a new market continues with drivers. Again, we begin with the end in mind, which is bankability. Are there consistent renewal procurements for utilities? 
and are there mechanisms in place to kind of sign PPAs with CNI customers and how bankable are these PPAs? So we need to know that what kind of incentives are in place? Is there state with RPS? Do we get compensated for RECs capacity and so your services? And finally, how are these policies formed, enacted, enforced, and probably most importantly, reintroduced into legislation? For us, we need to understand legislative and regulatory environment and how it works. Uh, policy is comprehensive and clear. And will the market be long lasting enough or will it produce a boom and bust cycle? And so using these two frameworks first brings us to kind of the last one, which is understanding the community that we're investing in. Community is the most important part, and that's what's saved it for last. We get familiar with the industry stakeholders, working groups, legislature, the regulatory environment, and kind of the neighbors that we're going to be investing in, the local communities that's going to be there. And so using this framework, we've entered into a couple of states. So North and South Carolina is kind of in our backyard. And so we've invested a good bit here and have developed a few projects here. And we're also in PJM, a few states in PJM and investing a lot there because of the market drivers, because of the contextual framework and because of the community that we're investing in. That's helpful to understand. And you did a really great job of explaining how you look at a new market. And it's interesting because you mentioned about the community, such a big part of the whole thing. And a lot of the time, obviously, there are a lot of things that timeframes for utility scale projects, but permitting obviously is one that takes a long time. And it's usually having the community township on board. So that was really great for you to explain that. It's really the last and the most important is community. So I appreciate Nobel, you explaining that. It is the most important part, right? Because what we do want to pay attention to, you know, these are projects in local communities and the neighbors will have to be around this. And so we want to smartly, intelligently cite our projects, we want to intelligently you know, go into the community and continue to invest in them. I think that it's like to have strong development partners who can build that relationship with the community is such a big thing. Like obviously you mentioned how it's important to find developers who have constructible or financeable projects. But can you talk about maybe some of the other qualities that you're looking for when it comes to like a developer that you partner with? The partners that we have so far are really great relationships that we'll continue to work with. And so kind of first and foremost, um, are these developers folks that we will continue to do business with? So that is very important. I discussed earlier on this podcast that solar is about people. Yes. And so the projects that I've successfully gone through across the finish line are with people that I continue to work with. That's first and foremost. Secondly, you know, do they continue to invest into the states that they're in? We want to see kind of a compound interest as it comes with folks that develop within their community. It's really important to be there, to stay there, to really understand it. And so that's kind of what we look for as a first pass for our development partners. We're lucky to have great development partners that believe in us, that trust us, and vice versa. When you said this, this makes me think of when you're working with a new developer, the first deal is always the hardest to close. But then once you're able to do that first one, it's then become so much more scalable as you're talking about. You have that relationship and relationships are when the people are really important in business. And that's when it becomes a lot more scalable. So that makes sense that you prefer to work with the same local developer who's in that local community. So I appreciate you explaining that. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. If we use the same form docs, more money goes to the developer and not to the star attorneys. That's a great point in itself that getting comfortable with the MIPA or whatever the agreement is and having, or there's so much more than that, but the development service agreement or however it's structured that once you're able to agree with on that. Another important point is 
any agreement you sign, I feel like a week or two later, there's something in the agreement that you never thought of. So if you have a strong relationship with that developer, it's easy to come to terms, say, if the economics change and how that would impact it. Exactly. We have been fortunate now that we have had to go back and renegotiate economics. And so I think numbers move all the time in a financial model, all the time until the project gets to NTP or COD. The most important part is think about it as a win-win situation. What you don't want to do is be penny-wise and pound-foolish. Everyone wins in a solar game. This is a rising tide lift all boats kind of game. Yes, that's so true. Everyone has to make money for the project to work. And that's a great point. Going back to like the state solar policies that we were talking about before, why do you think there's so much like boom and bust due to like state solar policies in the U.S.? I mean, you've worked in a lot of different markets within the U.S. And why do you think that's structured like that? I don't think it's structured on purpose like that, but it just seems to act that way. I think this is a two-part question. What makes a boom and bust cycle? Right? So boom and bust cycles are a very natural part of business. But however, in the solar development cycle, it tends to be exacerbated and shorter, you know, two to three years. And that's mainly driven by legislation. And the legislature wants to make moves. They want to make sure the constituents are looked after. But I think it starts way before all of that happens. We need to do as developers, they understand that they're not the enemy. My recommendation is that legislators, regulators, investors, developers all need to work together because maybe what they don't know is that bankability is key. But it's not set by local governments. Bankability is a benchmark set by banks and financiers. And I've worked across the states and I've worked in international markets. Bankability is a benchmark all in every single market. Mm -hmm. The banks need to make sure they didn't get paid at the end of the day. And so my suggestion, first and foremost, like developers, call your legislators, call your regulators, talk to them. Why can't we all be friends? Boom and bus cycles are a regular part of business, but I think there are things that we can do in the solar business to make sure that we could continue to invest in a solar market. Because if there's a boom and bust cycle, imagine you investing several years into a market and then there's a bust and then you need to move into a different market. All those market efficiencies kind of go to waste. And mm-hmm. us developers are inherently comfortable with risk, but we do need to have visibility in the future because development is costly. For sure. The timeline's all a bit longer. So... I think boom and bust cycles can be lessened by ensuring market stability. What I've experienced as a developer that I've gone, had projects fail and have projects move through, first and foremost is capacity targets. Most regulated markets have this. So capacity targets is by three years from now, we'll hit a gigawatt and then that's it. That is a really telltale sign that there's going to be a boom and bust cycle. You know, it's a thousand megawatts. This is great. There's a rush of investment into a market and there's a bust because that gigawatt is done. And we have to wait for a state legislature to open it back up. A very good example is North Carolina HB 589. It created the Competitive Energy Solutions for Renewable Energy. This is a fantastic program. It was 2,600 megawatt target. This opened up what's called the Competitive Procurement for Renewable Energy, where Palladium, we were able to secure about 160 megawatt of fixed price 20-year BPEs with Duke Energy. Several years later, that capacity is essentially all spoken for. While we are still investing in North and South Carolina, it's a bit opaque what the future looks like for solar in the Carolinas. However, the industry did work very hard to pass HB 951, which brings about major potential for long-term renewable energy expansion. The details still have to be worked out. However, the best case scenario is that there will be annual RFPs for the next 10 years. That is clarity. So... What you could kind of gather from there is that capacity targets, sunsets, limits, 
if they're replaced with reviews and evaluations, mm-hmm. a developer can say, great, I know that there's a capacity target now, but three years from now, there will be a review, there will be an evaluation, and the market will continue to invest. And again, us developers don't need to have perfect clarity, but we need to know that a market will be there. So markets without capacity targets are deregulated markets, such as ERCOT, MISO, or PJM. <laughs> sure, each of these RTOs, ISOs, have their own issues and risks. For us developers, we're inherently comfortable with risk. However, we do need to understand if there are opportunities for us to invest in the long term to avoid a boom and bust cycle. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 great i appreciate you explaining that nobel i mean it's really having a plan going forward, it sounds like, and not just a finite goal, which you did a great job of explaining about like three years and one gigawatt. And it's interesting to me that if you know that a solar market's going to continue, that's a good market because you know eventually that there'll be some sort of incentive, it sounds like, specifically when you're talking about North Carolina. It's interesting because I don't think people talk about it though, but development is still risky. You're making basically an educated investment or bet It's not totally clear. And that's where the real market opportunity is when things are not totally clear, because if it is, there's already a hundred developers out there developing. So that's interesting perspective and unique. Development is inherently risky. There's no perfect information. We can't, we have to move forward and understanding that, you know, we have to continue to invest in a new market, a new energy economy. Utility scale solar development as an industry is younger than Amazon is as a company. That's kind of a surprising fact. Yeah, that is surprising because Amazon's relatively new. And I think that's great perspective. I don't think we appreciate that solar is a relatively new industry, specifically like utility scale development, especially like you've been in the industry now since 2009. It feels like forever, but it's still like relatively new, which is great. Oh, yeah. That's right. (laughs) I've been through several solar coaster cycles. So, yes, it feels like it's been forever. Yeah, for sure. The solar coaster and the cycles, that's pretty. (laughs) Everyone in the industry could talk about that. Can you talk about like land use and land policy, how that's important? I mean, you talked a little bit about it earlier, but it would be great to get your perspective of how states should implement land policy to help with solar development. Effective land policies should take into account all stakeholders, right? So developers, counties, communities, businesses, landowners, neighbors, and even plants and animals. Planning zoning is one of the four pillars of renewables development alongside offtake, interconnection, and site control. Without its fourth leg, a project would not be able to stand on its own. Yes. And developing solar in where it's contentious is extremely counterproductive. And so we need to pass land use policy that kind of benefits all stakeholders. And I think the most important part is that there's an eye towards education, starting the conversation off to a good start. So I think states should work with the local governments and to develop proper and thorough land use permitting and tax policies that enable 
renewable energy development and takes into account the original needs of the constituents. So for example, the Virginia Clean Economy Act created a partial exemption from local taxes that allows local governments to assess a flat revenue share on a solar farm in lieu of taxes. So that's an economic benefit to the local government and helps promote solar development. That's the kind of policy that would really spark a good conversation around proper land use regulations. That is huge. You know, most solar developers are basically negotiating based on township or municipality and individually negotiating the what the property taxes or pilot property in lieu of taxes is. But if you have like an agreed upon by the state what it should be, that just makes it so much easier from a land use perspective for the developer to negotiate and know what that's going to be. And especially, too, to find out if the project's pencil or not, because I've seen in some instances where the pilot payment is almost the same as the lease amount, which is pretty (laughs) crazy to see. That is a great point. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yes, it's great for our financial models, but the best part is that it does open up the conversation and it does compensate the local government, the community. That is key. And that's a great point. And it was interesting to hear about your international solar development experience. Can you talk about the different countries that you looked at projects? And how do you think what you've learned internationally has helped in solar development helped you what you're currently doing in the U.S.? It was a very fun part of my life, getting on planes, uh, (laughs) different foods, and going to places where I can't speak the language and learning them. And so I developed projects in Mexico, Chile, Argentina, and Japan. Through my first development shop that I started in 2015-2016, I was able to see these very nascent markets be created. And now I still kind of monitor them to continue to understand how these markets evolved. But international development isn't too different than spending to new markets in the U.S. Each U.S. state is essentially its own market, essentially its own country. You need challenges and it's positive attributes. So expanding into an international market takes kind of everything I discuss on this podcast, as well as factoring in country risk. What I've learned a lot there is that the boots on the ground exposure is extremely important. Being able to set foot there and understand the culture and understand how this project impacts the community is very, very important. And I guess the language barrier doesn't really help either. So my biggest takeaway is kind of how to analyze, execute a market strategy with limited information. I think I talked about this before. The litmus test for a bankable project is pretty much the same standard in every single market. While driving to a site in Embracio, Mexico or Nogales, Chile, you know, I was able to point to past projects I developed and financed and sold in the past and understand how to take these projects from where they were to NTP and COD. Country risk is greater than you anticipate. And that's the same for every single state that we're in. So 100%, you need to have a local presence. And I said this before, there's nothing quite like setting foot on site. The last point I've learned and applied to where I am today is that partnerships with developers and local governments, other stakeholders is the lifeblood to success. I don't speak Spanish and Google Translate can only get me so far, <laughs> but the partners that I worked with in Mexico are the reasons why we got the projects moving forward. So be a good partner and your projects will get done. That's a great insight. And it's so key about local partnerships and having great partners and then understanding country specific. And also the great point you made is like the U.S., each state is almost its own country. We'll work with a lot of foreign companies and they think it's all the same all throughout the U.S. But when you realize how complicated and convoluted it is, it creates opportunity as well, but it makes it complicated. 
I'm a fast talking solo developer from California <laughs> and now lives in North Carolina. The, a difference in culture here. Being from California and then coming to North Carolina, I can't imagine the differences in developing or the way things are done as well. Yeah, I do love it here though, so it's great. That's definitely great. What trends are you seeing from your perspective on the solar industry? Obviously, you've been through a couple of solar coasters or booms and busts. What are you seeing in the market in 2022? I think as an industry, we're developing solar at an exponential rate and at a cost that's cheaper than running existing coal plants. The challenges that we're seeing too are interconnecting projects to grids becoming way more expensive and taking way longer than previously. In 2022, still facing kind of supply chain issues that is increasing EPC costs for building solar. On the flip side, the more solar going into the grid creates kind of a supply and demand and balanced energy markets. It's happening in Kaiso where energy is cheaper when the sun is shining. And so we're seeing the proliferation of solar and storage and standalone solar being very, very helpful in markets like Kaiso. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you're basically essentially talking about the duck curve, that how outside of peak times where there's sunlight, the cost of electricity is shifting, which is a really interesting. Because I think you're going to see that more and more. I think you're seeing that in Massachusetts with their solar program and some of the other states, you're seeing that change. And those are great points about the supply chain issues that we probably could go on and on and talk about that. And interconnection too. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because there's a couple of thoughts I've had about this. Like to me, it still doesn't make sense that the solar development company has to pay for the interconnection expense when it's in a sense ensuring reliability to the grid, making the grid more distributed. Obviously, this is like a topic that always comes up, but hopefully that will change over time where there's some sort of cost shifting or sharing that the developer does, especially as more utility scale comes online, it's going to be harder and harder to find sites, which I'm sure you're dealing with. Absolutely, we're dealing with it. Definitely harder to find sites next to places where we can interconnect. I do agree to a certain degree that the cost should be shared because it is the public good. The interconnection processes were designed for large coal plants that could operate 24 hours a day seven days a week, all year long. Solar is an intermediate resource and there is a way that we get to a point where we pay for the generation as we go along, or there's a way for the kind of the government to step in and help pay for the transmission lines. That would get a lot of solar through, make a lot more projects pencil. Even though we're seeing this kind of boom and projects getting kind of built, I think that would really make the proliferation of solars even greater. Yeah, that's a great point about that, because like the transmission lines, if that's done to upgrade them, that will allow a lot of renewables and maybe give more opportunity to other land sites. And I'm sure you're finding that too, focused on PGM in North Carolina and South Carolina, as you mentioned, that it's challenging to get ideal land sites, which is interesting because I believe those markets, there's been a lot of solar that's already installed, depending on what state you're talking about. Yeah, it's definitely getting harder and harder to find contiguous rectangular sites. <laughs> you know, as Palladium, we're not afraid of challenging development. We're happy to go into markets because we do see the market continuing to grow in Northern South Carolina and PJM and other markets really. And so it is going to be more complex. It is going to be tougher, but we're all in on the solar coaster here. The more complicated projects that you could develop, the more value that you're going to add to your development partners the more dense solar that will be developed. So that's great to hear that Palladium is willing to look at anything in the more complicated projects and taking that institutional capital with your development expertise, I think is such a unique 
advantage. We think so. One of the interesting things I wanted to ask you too is like, have you seen a lot of sort of like a storage projects or standalone storage, especially like in the markets that you're looking at? It'd be great because I think we all hear about storage for the past five years, but I still think it's still taking some time for us to see like large scale adoption at this point. Correct. It is taking some time to see large scale adoption, but we are seeing major uptick in activity. Some markets are more suitable, like ISO and ERCOT in Massachusetts, like you said, because of the duck curve. Right now, most markets now have a commercial path for standalone storage projects. It's a new technology. Market stakeholders still need to be educated on them. Transparently, we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. It's hard to make a pencil in a financial model. While we are seeing the proliferation of standalone storage and solar projects, a storage ITC will significantly increase the standalone storage and solar storage market. It's the same thing that happened to solar 10 years ago. It's also economic law. It's rights law. It's the learning curve. So for every doubling of output, the cost of new output is 80% of the prior output installed. The more standalone storage we get installed, the cheaper and more efficient it's going to be. I said this before, this rising tide left all boats kind of market. And kudos to those developers who are getting it done because it is getting done. That's a great perspective. And that's interesting as well. Like you mentioning... I guess Moore's law and technology and Swanson's law for solar technology, as you have more production than the cost and the efficiencies of panels and batteries, specifically, I think lithium ion, probably the next two to three or four years has been dropping tremendously, but will continue to even more and make it more projects able to pencil. Right. And on top of it falling, it's going to become more efficient. Oh, that's true. There's going to be a lot of innovation around it. The more that we install, incentivizes entrepreneurs to come in and develop new technologies and find new ways to implement them. So it's a very exciting time for battery technology. It definitely is a very exciting time for battery technology. And that's a great perspective on the technology getting better. And that will just make these projects more economical, obviously going forward. And I think another big thing is states and utilities, obviously having some sort of incentive or like fixed sort of cash flows for the different revenue streams involved in energy storage. I think that will help over time that some states do have at this time, but it'll be interesting. Yeah, you're right. See. So Massachusetts Smart Program is a perfect example of that. They have a very clear and defined way of incentivizing and paying for and supporting solar plus storage and standalone storage. I think more markets adopt that kind of thinking. Massachusetts is definitely ahead of its time. We're excited to see how that market expands and we're excited to see other states take Massachusetts as an example so that solar plus storage and standalone storage can proliferate. Yeah, definitely. I agree. The SPAR program in Massachusetts has been one of the sort of state level programs to do that. And it seems like a lot of states do look at like what Massachusetts is doing and take components of that. And hopefully that some of the states do, because that just creates a lot more comfort as the developer slash investor, because you have a sort of project finance, these cash flows that are guaranteed to receive revenue for a fixed amount of time. So that's huge. Obviously, you started Palladium Energy. You have started other companies before. I know you're from California originally, where there's a lot of entrepreneurship with Silicon Valley. Like, What advice would you give for entrepreneurs? The Solar Maverick podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. We call our listeners Mavericks. Like, what advice would you give for would-be entrepreneurs or people interested in starting their own business? Sure. So in my view, 
an entrepreneur is someone who has the boldness or the audacity to see change <laughs> from the status quo, right? And so anyone could be an entrepreneur, whether working at a big development shop or kind of just fresh out of school. Sure, there are challenges and risks. You know, you're risking your money, your time, your effort. You don't face challenge upon challenge. There are days where motivation is going to be low, but one thing to keep in mind is it will be worth it. So if I were to share one piece of advice that I learned throughout my various entrepreneurial ventures, it's kind of to understand the power of compound growth. I think, and I've read this and multiple times, is compound growth occurs in multiple areas in your life, not just your stock portfolio. It exists in your productivity, in your business, in your relationships, in your health, and your happiness, really. So just like setting up recurring investments, do the same with your daily life. There's the age-old adage that if you grow 1% per day, by the end of the year, you're 37 times better than what you were when you first started. So for me, every day I make sure I have an hour and a half block of completely focused work where all my notifications turned off. Right? This allows me to fully focus on completely one big task per day. And I typically do that from 7.30 to 9. And then everything else thereafter, I get to do you know my business development job, which is a big part of it. And so I read somewhere too that talent comes from long-term focused efforts and health comes from long-term habits. You know, I truly believe that. And so running a sustainable business is a marathon, not a sprint. Compound growth occurs in multiple areas of your life. Again, not just your stock portfolio. It exists in productivity, business, relationships, health, and happiness. That's great advice. I mean, these are suggestions that I find helpful for myself and to implement that more. And obviously the most important to do it first thing in the morning, dedicated time to that. That's something as well that I try to do. So it's always great. That whole concept of compounding, not just in your portfolio. I think sometimes it's harder to make those changes though, than to actually know what to do. But you know, that's life <laughs> in general. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. There's a concept of habit stacking. So when you go to sleep, you put your phone next to the coffee maker. And so when it rings in the morning, you have to get up to get your phone to go to get your coffee. So <laughs> you know, something that you have to get up and kind of eat the frog and get out of bed, but you also get your coffee in the morning. And it's fantastic. And it's a great way to start the day. Things like that, or I think setting up systems really help. At least that's helped me a lot in my ventures. I read that in a habit book. I'm trying to remember which one. I think James Clear said that about the alarm and the coffee thing. So yes. that's interesting. Well, this has been an amazing podcast interview, Nobel. If our audience or Mavericks, who we call our audience, would want to learn more about you or Palladium Energy, like what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, sure. Visit our website at pd46energy.com or our LinkedIn page. Also, feel free to reach out to me if you want to discuss any topics that we discuss on the podcast. So I'm happy to provide Nobel your email as well. Yeah. Um, if you're fine with that. Sure. You can also email me. Sure, the email will be in the show notes. We're looking forward to connecting. Thanks, Benai. Thank you, Nobel. This is great perspective. I appreciate you sharing your time and your experience. And thank you again for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown.